Well, a great coach knows two things. First, he knows how far he has to push his players. And secondly, he knows how far he can push his players. I think Herb Brooks was a great example of that kind of coach. Brooks was given the unenviable challenge of coaching the 1980 U.S. hockey team. His job, a job that no one else wanted, was to take a bunch of amateur hockey players and in just a few short months prepare them to take on the Soviets. The Soviets had won the gold in hockey in 64, 68, 72, and 76 and were prepped to do it again in 80. To do this, Brooks decided to change everything about the way the Americans played hockey. So he changed the way he scouted players, the way he chose his team. He made each player take a ridiculously long 300-question quiz that had seemingly nothing to do with hockey. He changed the way they trained. He changed the way they did formations. He gave them a new style of play, and he filled it with tons and tons of new drills and lots of conditioning. About 30 minutes into the movie Miracle that came out in 2004, when you're watching this as it's uh, depicted there in the movie, it seems like all of Brooks's efforts to whip this team into shape are hopeless. It's at that point that the assistant coach steps in and kind of speaks for all of us when he challenges Coach Brooks. And he says, you can't push them this hard. Not for six more months. They're too tired the whole team is tired. It won't work. And the wise, sage, old hockey coach looks at him and says, I know how hard to push him, Craig. And the assistant says, are you, are you sure? Are you sure you know? And Brooks says, you know why I had him take that test, Craig? To make sure I could push him this hard. He knew not only how far he needed to push his team, but how far he could push his team. We've been spending the last couple months in 2 Corinthians. And today, what I want us to do is I want us to jump back into 1 Corinthians. Because as we've been hanging out in that series in 2 Corinthians, it's been really clear that the Apostle Paul has been pushing the Corinthians really hard. In fact, when you take 1 and 2 Corinthians together, you find that he's been pushing them harder than almost any other church in every way. And clearly, they needed it. They were prideful and divisive. They were selfish and argumentative and slanderous. They were tarnishing the reputation of the gospel in how they treated one another, how they tolerated sin in their presence, even how they organized themselves and ordered their worship together. Corinth, the city that they were in, it was a, a hedonistic hub of, of idol worship and temple prostitution and wealth and opulence. And as Brad has often said, it was not a problem that there was a church in Corinth. There was a problem that there was too much of Corinth in that church. And so as you read First and Second Corinthians, it's clear that Paul is putting them through their paces. He knows all the things that are wrong, all the things that need to be corrected, and he knows how far he can push them. But how? How does he know? How does he know how far he can push them? How does he know he's not just going to crush this fledgling little church? He's not going to damage the bruised reed or, or, or snuff out the smoking wick? 
Well, what I want us to do today is to go back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. We'll start in verse 4 and we'll read through verse 9. And I want us to examine Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for the church in Corinth. Because with all the heat that Paul seems to be throwing at these folks over the next couple chapters, it's easy to forget that he starts these letters with thanksgiving with praise to God for all that God has done in and through them. And it's in this prayer that I think we realize how Paul knows how hard he can push them. If you would look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. And if you'd like, you can use the red Bible that's in the seat back in front of you. And if you're using that today, know that that could also be our gift to you. You're welcome to take that home. And you can follow along with us on page 952. 952. Starting in verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank God for his grace. Amen? Thank God for his grace. Actually, I think that's really just the summation of our passage here today. Thank God for his grace. Thank God that we have not received the wrath that we justly deserve, but that those who are in Christ have received his grace. Starts there in verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. When, when Paul starts his letter to the Colossians and he thanks God for them, he thanks them, he thanks God for the faith, the hope, and the love that they possess in abundance. When Paul thanks God for the Philippians at the beginning of that letter, he gives thanks with joy because of the Philippians' partnership in the gospel from the first day. But when he thanks God for the Corinthians, with all their errors and arrogance, he pauses and simply gives thanks to God for his grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace in scripture is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor that we receive from God through his son, Jesus Christ. Some have helpfully marked out a distinction between grace and mercy, saying that grace is us receiving good from God that we do not deserve, whereas mercy, on the other hand, is, receive, is not receiving the punishment from God we do deserve. Now, that's not a perfect distinction. I think those words are often uh, synonymous and related, but it's helpful for us to see what we are receiving now. We are receiving in God's grace the good that we do not deserve. By definition, grace is a gift. It's not earned, it's received. It's received. See, it's been, it's been given to them in Christ Jesus. Yesterday at our house, we had a triple birthday party. 
So my three oldest kids, they're, they're, they're very excited. Well, so soon we'll have an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 7-year-old, as well as a 5-year-old. And since their birthdays are all kind of in this three-week period that we're in the middle of, we held one giant birthday party yesterday. Lots of fun. And in the graciousness of their friends, well, actually, in the graciousness of their friends' parents, my kids received many generous gifts yesterday. By virtue of merely having a birthday, my kids are now far richer than they were on Friday. And it cost them nothing. But, but it was costly. Amen? It cost someone much. And, and so it is with God's grace. Grace was given to the Corinthians in Christ Jesus. Christ paid for that unmerited favor for the Corinthians that they received. And he paid for it with his very life. Paul will point this out later on in the letter when he says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That spotless, perfect, guiltless lamb of God laid down his life as a sacrifice for the sin of the Corinthians. And he not only died, but he died and, and rose again, conquering sin and death. And, and, and Paul celebrates this in chapter 15 when he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, and that he was buried, and then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, and then he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Thank God for his grace. Thank God that we are saved by grace, the grace he offers to us through his Son. And not just saved, but sanctified. For grace is not just that get-out-of-jail-free card. It's, it's the very thing that we need to become like the one who has saved us. We need grace. It's how we become like our Savior, holy and blameless. That's how Paul elsewhere explains what grace means to the believer. So if you would hold your spot here in 1 Corinthians and turn over with me to Titus chapter 2, just a couple pages over. If you're using that red pew Bible, you'll be on page 952, but Titus is just a little bit to the right. We see in Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. So Paul, writing now to a different congregation in Crete and to one of their leaders, Titus, says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Praise God. This grace has brought salvation for all people. But not only that, it's training us. This grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see how the, the truths about grace that Paul says here in Titus ring true with the ways in which he has thanked God for the grace 
that the Corinthians have experienced. There's so many beautiful parallels there. What we see is that salvation is just the half of it. Actually, by word count here in, in Titus, salvation is just the tip of the iceberg. The grace of God trains us. It trains us to renounce wickedness and instead to embrace godliness and to wait eagerly for the return of our Savior. Grace isn't a pool you just dipped your toe into one time back in the day. It's the waters that we swim in now as Christians. It's what we need to set our eyes on the return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That is why Christ suffered. That's why he bled. That's why he died. And that is what his resurrection secured. The grace of God is given to saints, and that is how this is carried out. This grace that we have received produces these very things. And it's the assurance that the grace of God will do exactly that that brings Paul into this prayer of thanksgiving. God's grace has not only saved the Corinthians, but it will sanctify them. God's grace has not only brought them into his kingdom, but it will make them worthy of his kingdom. Grace is not only a reality in the life of the believer, but it continues to bear results in the life of the believer. Praise God. Thank God for his grace. Thank God for his grace that it is an ever-real reality in the life of the believer and then it produces great and glorious results in the life of the believer. Turn back, with, if we would, back to 1 Corinthians. Because now that we understand what this grace is intended to do, let's see how it plays out in the life of the Corinthians that has led Paul to this wonderful expression of thanksgiving. And what I want us to do is I want us to look at, with the rest of our time, Four gracious realities and their four glorious results that prompt thanksgiving in Paul. So if you're our note takers today, we're going to look for four gracious realities and their four glorious results. So the first gracious reality that prompts thanksgiving in Paul is that the Corinthians have been enriched in Christ. We are enriched in Christ. And this results in the gospel being confirmed in us. We are enriched, that's a reality. And the result is that the gospel is confirmed in us. Let's pick up our passage again and reorient ourselves to 1 Corinthians. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way, you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. I'll pause there. The Corinthians were rich in every way, it says, in all speech and all knowledge. Now, it seems that in 1 Corinthians, Paul is using uh, this phrase, uh, speech and knowledge, uh, to talk about teaching. So it comes up again in chapter 12, particularly in verse 8. 
where he's listing out different giftings of the Holy Spirit and the way that they play out in the life of the, of the Corinthian church. And here he seems to be using words that they would have hung on to, even uh, claimed as rightful uh, parts of them, even bragged about. He's going to point out that it's, it's not theirs in themselves. It's theirs in the Spirit. It's theirs in grace. The Corinthians have no doubt that they are rich. They are very proud of that fact. They're very proud of the fact that they could wax eloquent with the best of them. They love to brag. They love to brag to themselves and, and to anyone who would listen. They brag that they are, they're loaded when it comes to speech and knowledge. And they don't seem to care at all if they've become a room of resounding gongs and clanging cymbals. They don't care as long as it's filled with all sorts of speech and all sorts of knowledge. They think that they can, they can fix their problems with a multitude of words. But Proverbs reminds us where there are many words, sin is unavoidable. See, the problem is not that the Corinthians are impoverished spiritually. It's not a problem that they're well off. The problem is, is that they've squandered their wealth. They're, they're spending it on their own passions. How can they remember to steward the riches that they have received in Christ Jesus? Well, I think the reason Paul starts this letter in this way is because in part he's reminding them that they are not just rich, but that they have been enriched. You see, who's the prime mover here in this passage? Did the Corinthians amass for themselves this great wealth of teaching? Did they earn it with all their own hard work or, or diligence or, or personal savvy? No. What do we learn? They received this grace. It's the abundant riches of God. And through that, they have been enriched. What we find out is that the Corinthians are their spiritual trust fund babies. They, they were born again with a silver spoon in their mouths. Praise God. Thank God for his grace. In, in 2 Corinthians, Paul spells this out even more plainly for them. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. What he's saying is that, that every syllable of speech, every brainwave of knowledge, every sermon, every Sunday school lesson, every family devotion, every, every bit of wise counsel that's, that's given over a cup of Corinthian coffee, every word of Christ that dwelled in them richly through the songs and hymns and spiritual songs that they sang, every note of that was the grace of God. And that gracious reality had glorious results because the confession of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord proved to a watching world that the gospel really does change people. Look again in verse 5. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Or in this way, as you were enriched in all of this teaching, in all of this ability to confess the truths of the gospel, in that way, the very testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. And again, who's the prime mover? Was it the Corinthians that confirmed the gospel? No. 
It's God who confirmed his own truth, his own gospel, by giving grace to these desperate people. You see, before the gospel arrived in AD 51, Corinth was filled with the kinds of people you find in every town all over the world. Paul will describe them later on in chapter 6 when he says that they were sexually immoral. They were idol worshipers, adulterers. They were those who had been mastered by their same-sex attraction, by their greed, by alcohol. They were swindlers. They were revilers. In short, they are the very people who do not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's exactly who these members of the church in Corinth used to be. So were some of you, he says. So were some of you. But instead, by the grace of God, they were washed and they were sanctified and they were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And now they testify to this change by the very grace of God. If you're here with us today and you don't consider yourself a follower of Christ, let me first say thank you for being here with us. We're so glad that you're here. And second, let me kind of orient you to who else is in the room with us right now. This room is filled with people who were just like the Corinthians. We too once walked according to the course of this world. We carried out the desires of the flesh. We were by nature children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, has brought us from death to life. Because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together in Christ. And I know this is true, and I can testify to you because I have seen how he has enriched these people in the testimonies of Christ. I have heard their great speech, their speech and all knowledge that he has enriched them with it. I hear it. I hear it again and again. Dottie Harris, I heard it this morning when you were soothing a baby with stories about the grace of God down in our children's wing. Parents of our teenagers, Guy Wilcox, I've heard it over the last couple of weeks as I have heard teenagers stand here and testify to God's work in their life before they went to be baptized. Thank God for his grace. Emily Cockrell, I heard it last week when we sang that song that you helped to write so that we could corporately sing of God's grace together. Scott, Scott Belinsky, I heard it this morning when you reminded us in our Second Samuel study that Absalom's death points to a greater death, a sacrificial death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank God for his grace. And so, non-Christian that's with us this morning, know that the testimony about Christ has been confirmed. The gospel really does work. I've heard it over and over again in this room with these people. And so I pray that you would consider this morning the claims of Christ. And UBC member, because I know about you what Paul knew about the Corinthians, I'm going to push you to go even further in that grace. To follow that grace further. To walk more faithfully in that grace. So UBC, 
I know that you love the teaching we have here at UBC. I know because it comes up all the time. It comes up in member interviews. It comes up in ways in which you praise God as we talk about what's going on in your life. But let me warn you, do not let it puff us up. We cannot become puffed up. We can't think that, that we've perfected it, that we've cornered the market when it comes to teaching. We cannot allow it to see ourselves as superior to others because of God's grace in all speech and all knowledge within this congregation. We must grow not only in our care and clarity in handling the gospel, but also our humility. Charitably speak of the teaching you hear at other area churches. Praise God for the grace that you see in those congregations. And, and be careful that we don't start teaching for our own acclaim, for our own renown, to make a name for ourselves. I think that's a temptation that we can face individually and corporately. So not just those who teach publicly, but even, brother and sister, as you instruct privately others in your home or, or in our hallways here, guard your heart. Guard your heart that you aren't, aren't doing so just to impress them out of the fear of man, out of a hope to be recognized. Instead, pray regularly for your humility and for the humility of our teachers, particularly our public teachers, particularly those who fill this pulpit. Pray that they will flourish. Pray for Brad's teaching in particular, that it will be fruitful. And not so that we, as a congregation, can bask in the glory of being at the it church here in town. But because God is gracious. And we want to thank God for his grace. And as a warning to those of you who aspire to be teachers, let me encourage you in that aspiration. Continue to pursue it. But in the same vein, pursue it in humility and in love. In love for the Father who demonstrates his graciousness by using you as a mouthpiece for his gospel. And out of sincere love for the hearer. Those you have the opportunity to point toward more faithfulness. Do so out of sincere love for that. And, and may that be ever increasing in us. This is a gracious reality, and it has a glorious result. But there's more. Look at verse 7. We see our second gracious reality. Verse 7 says, So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This gracious reality actually sits up underneath the previous one. And we can kind of lose it because we saw that uh, that glorious result kind of tacked there in the middle, which is why I think the ESV translators here have put those dashes to kind of help us see how things are, are moving around. But when you hear it without verse 6, it makes a little more sense. Verse 5 says that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, not only do the Corinthians have the gift of teaching by which they, they literally testify about Christ, but they also abound in all the spiritual gifts. When, when Paul discusses uh, gifts in Corinthians, he's speaking of the ways in which the Holy Spirit in grace particularly enables individual members of the body to serve and to build up the body as a whole. 
So these aren't meant for their individual uh, enablement and benefit, but for the benefit of the whole. And the Corinthians, they were, they were fixated on their gifts. They had all sorts of questions for Paul about, about how gifts should be sorted into, into hierarchies and, and what that says about the structure of the church and, and who's really the privileged and who really ought to be the leaders and who's really important. But Paul spends a lot of time trying to unpack those answers in chapters 12, 13, and 14 of this letter. And what we realize is that it's not a problem that they have the gifts. It's how they are squandering those gifts, how they are using those gifts for their own acclaim, for their own benefit, not for the building up of the church. And if we're not careful, we'll do exactly the same thing. Whether it's in a an interest in understanding how the spiritual gifts work. We might spend all of our time at the beginning of chapter 12 or the beginning of chapter 14 and miss that at the end of 12, Paul tells us there is a better way, a way in which these gifts are to be worked out in the life of the body, the body that is meant to be working as a whole. And that way is through love. That's what we're to do. So we become like that video gamer who's, who's kind of min-maxing their way through a game. They're, they're wandering around the map. They're, they're avoiding the things that are hard for them and only doing the things that are easy for them to try to build themselves up in a certain way, but neglecting all of their faults. Or it's like the athlete who just skips leg day all the time because it, it doesn't seem fun, right? And there doesn't seem to be the gains in it. But Herb Brooks would tell us that the the legs feed the wolf, gentlemen. So we have to do the work even in the areas that, that don't seem fun. Or to intentionally not just bulk up in one certain area, but to build up all of the strengths that we find in the body, in the church. And how are we to do that? Well, when we are not lacking in any gift, what this what this gracious reality results in, the glorious result, is that we are enabled to wait eagerly for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that glorious result. Do you connect those dots? That God has gifted this church in gracious ways so that we can wait eagerly for the revealing of the Lord. Not so that we can focus on the here and now and get lost in the weeds of all the things that we're doing in the life of the body now. But he has given us every gift so that we lack none of them in Christ so that we can look forward to Christ. When we truly will lack nothing between us and Christ. We look forward to that day. We eagerly await. I think that's what that's what that term there in verse 7, as you wait, when it's used in, in Romans 8 or Galatians 5, it, it carries with it this connotation that we, we wait eagerly. We, we long for it. So it's not that just we sit back and wait. It's not that we languish in it. We definitely don't do it impatiently, but we do it actively. In a couple of weeks, by God's grace and in his will, we, my family and I plan to, to head to the beach together. We've been We've been planning for months, more than a year, for this beach trip. And we're, we're waiting eagerly for that trip. But it doesn't mean we're just sitting on our thumbs and waiting around. No, 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 we're, we're planning and we're preparing and we're getting things ready. 
We're, 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 we're scheming and we're, we're, we're researching and we're doing all the things that we need to do to get ready for this trip. We are eagerly waiting. We can't make the days go any faster, but we can use them productively for that end. Is that how you wait eagerly for the return of the Lord? The Thessalonians, no, excuse me, the Corinthians couldn't even wait patiently for their brothers and sisters in Christ to show up for a meal. Instead, they, they jumped the gun and they, they even got themselves drunk on the, the, on the gifts of, the, of the, the Lord's Supper. We are to wait differently because we, we have been given all of these gifts, enriched by God. We can wait eagerly and patiently. And I see that here. I see that in this body. I see the way that as we lack none of these gifts, that you are using them well to point others towards Christ, towards others towards the day of Christ. I see it in the way folks like Mary Grace and Reba were quick to jump on the meal train to provide a meal for the workmen who had a baby this week. I see it in the way Bronson and Evelyn have opened their home repeatedly for years so that many of us could gather with them to discuss the things of the gospel. But more importantly, folks who have come from the other side of the world can dwell in their home and see the gospel play out in their life and hear the testimony of God's grace. And many have come to Christ because of their gracious use of the gift of hospitality that God has given them. I, I love to rejoice and to thank God for Michelle Griffiths, for the way in which God has gifted you with language and how you have used that gifting to the ends of the earth to tell others about Christ, some who had never, ever heard it in their language. Praise God. Thank God for his gifting. Frank, it's good just to pray with you, to pray with you when you call me during the week or when we gather this morning. It is good for us to use the giftings that God has given us to point one another. I have been encouraged. I have been strengthened by the grace that God has produced in you to look forward to the coming day of Christ. May that be so and ever increasing in our midst. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, think carefully about how you encourage one another to use the gifts that they have. Earnestly desire, yes, earnestly desire, Paul says in Romans 12, the gifts that build up the body even more. Desire those, pursue those, but do so in love. Do so so that we can build up the body as a whole to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to do that, brothers and sisters, be patient with one another. As we wait eagerly, be patient with one another. Be careful to build up the body, not thinking of ourselves just as individual members, but instead as members of a whole. And in that, we must be careful to, as we build up the body, not to amputate parts of the body, not to neglect and to cut off parts of the body. Now, from my own personal experience, I can tell you that you can live a long and happy life missing parts of your body. But as one who has spent considerable time living my life, missing parts of the body, let me encourage you not to do it. If you have that option, don't take it. I can teach you everything you need to know about how to tie your shoes with one hand, but I'd rather not. Brothers and sisters, we do the same thing. When we settle to be a church 
that has experienced all sorts of amputations, where we've deliberately cut off parts of our own body and left them aside and not cared for them and encouraged them and strengthened them and built them up. And yes, by God's grace, there are lots of uh, churches walking around among us with all sorts of amputations, and God still does much in and through them. Praise God. Thank God for his grace. But let's not do that on purpose, brothers and sisters. Let's instead care for those parts, particularly those that are wounded and tender among us. This is a gracious gift of God. It is a gracious reality that we lack nothing and that it is a gracious, a glorious result that we can look forward eagerly to the revealing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And thirdly, we see the grace here that we will be sustained by Christ. We will be sustained by Christ. And this produces the glorious result that we are made guiltless. Paul is confident that what God has begun in the Corinthians in salvation, he will carry on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Paul actually uses a bit of a play on words here that we kind of lose in the English translation. So in, in, we see what is in our verse there in verse 8, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we see that third um, gracious reality and glorious result. Well, that word that we see there as sustain in our English translations, or at least in the ESV, is actually the same word we saw back up in verse 6. So in verse 6, it says, as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. And then in verse 8, he says, who, Christ Jesus, will confirm you to the end. He will sustain you to the end. So literally what we're seeing here is that Christ has, just as Christ has confirmed his own gospel, he will also confirm his own people. He will carry them along until the end. He will prove that they really are his people by sustaining them until he returns. Once again, this is clearly grace because the Corinthians have not earned this kind of favor. They've not earned this kind of care from the Lord. And yet, Paul is confident that even as he looks down the, the scope of what he knows he needs to say to them in this letter and in subsequent letters, he knows all the troubles that they face. He knows that God will overcome all of those, that he will sanctify by his grace these very people. It's why he will say to the Ephesians, he'll describe what Christ does when he says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is what Christ intends to do with his bride. And Paul is confident that he will do exactly that even in the Corinthian church. He is confident that at the day of Christ, they will be found to be just like their Savior. Blameless, without wrinkle, without spot, guiltless. And they have, there's been much that they have been guilty of. They don't have to, I don't have to look super hard to figure this out. 
I don't have to know every detail of the problems with the Corinthians to know what a big deal this grace is. I only have to know my own heart. I only have to know how guilty I am. I only have to know how far I've run from Christ to know how far he has to take me to save me and to make me blameless before him at his eternal throne. Paul's picking up this language that we borrow out of the Old Testament that there is a day of the Lord coming. There is a day of the Lord coming. And he clarifies that that day is the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the day of the, of the Son, of the very Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. How will you be found on that day? Will you be found guiltless, washed by the blood of Christ? Or will you be still found covered in your own guilt? There's been lots of evidence where I've seen this in this congregation. We could go into for a while detailing the ways in which God has, by his grace, turned us from our sin into repentance. And so let's follow in that pattern of grace. Non-Christian, if you're here with us today, know that you too could be found blameless guiltless on the day of Christ. You too can trust in Jesus Christ as your only Lord and Savior. He is your only hope. But now in your sin, you are separated from him. You are a child of wrath. You are waiting for that day, not eagerly, but avoidantly. Not longing to, be, to see our Savior face to face, but terrified. And that may not be your felt reality. You may not even know that now. But what scripture tells us is that is the end for all who have not trusted in Jesus Christ. But if you today would trust in Jesus Christ, if you would turn and trust in him as your only Lord and Savior, then he will wash you clean by his grace. He will make you blameless. I would love to talk to you about that after we're done. I would love to help you understand what it means to trust in Christ. And not only me, actually, every Christian in this room would love to have that conversation with you afterwards. You can come find me or one of the other elders that you saw up here earlier, or you can just turn to someone in the pew next to you and say, I want to be found guiltless at the day of Christ. How? How can I trust in Jesus Christ to save me? And I promise you that that Christian would love to rearrange their entire day to be able to talk to you about the most important thing that could ever happen to you. And brother and sister in Christ, because of the great grace of God, and because you are promised to one day be found blameless in Christ, then seek to walk blameless now. Seek to walk blameless now. Repent and walk faithfully in Christ. Repent of your secret sins. Stop harboring them and, and quietly thinking that you have them under control. Instead, kill them. Seek them out and kill them. Do so among other brothers and sisters in Christ. Confess that sin one to another. Open up your heart to the light of the gospel as you open it up to the word and in prayer and with brothers and sisters. Here as we confess, confess God's truth and confess our sin one to another. And God, who is faithful, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us and wash us white as snow. And that is the, the crux of the fourth and final and greatest of these glorious realities, these gracious realities. 
The fourth one there is in verse 9. God is faithful. Amen. Thank God for his grace. God is faithful. Every other grace that we've seen here and elsewhere in Scripture is underpinned by this grace. This is the foundational grace of all graces, that God is faithful. We can have confidence in the rest because we have confidence that God is faithful. Every other promise he's ever made to his people in the Old Testament, to us now in Christ in the New Testament, every promise that we find is underpinned by the fact that God is the one who enables, that God is the one who is faithful. And even as we find story after story after story that we can easily see ourselves in of our own faithlessness, of our own lack of of surety, our our lack of steadfastness, we see God's steadfast love. God is a covenant-keeping God. We saw that in Deuteronomy 7 that, that Lily read for us earlier, that he, in his goodness, is what we find our hope in. In his faithfulness, we rest in him. And, and what, what happens after Deuteronomy 7 is similar to what Paul does in the rest of 1 Corinthians. Is Moses is just going to lean into those people because he knows that God is faithful. He knows that God is good. He knows that God is a covenant-keeping God. He knows that God keeps his promises to a thousand generations. And so he's going to call those people to walk blameless and holy lives. Paul knew that for the Corinthians. I know that for you because of the evidence of God's grace in your life. And what this results in, among many other things and all the other graces we've seen in this passage, is that we have fellowship with the Son, with Jesus Christ our Lord. What we literally have here is partnership in the gospel, participation with the very Son of God. We are co-heirs with him, We walk in faithfulness with him. And we walk in faithfulness with one another because we are in fellowship with the one who is faithful. And we grow in that. I've seen that here. I've seen that in our our linger culture and the ways you guys stick around and fellowship with one another and not about what's going to happen with the hogs this afternoon or, or, or what are we going to do with our summer plans or how, how you're feeling and what's going on in, in, your, in your health. But more than that, in the deeper things of God. I hear that in how you guys talk with one another and how you guys engage about the sermon in our, in our home, in our life groups or, or just here after the service. And let me encourage you, if, if you're not one who typically sticks around a few minutes after the service, let me just ask you for five extra minutes today. I'll, I'll even stop here in just a second with the sermon so you can have those five extra minutes back. And, and, and give those five minutes just to stay here and talk with someone else about what you have seen of the grace of God. In this passage, in your life this week, hear from them how God has graciously worked in their lives. Be encouraged in that this week. I've seen it in the ways folks like Matt Phillips and others have, have worked hard to, to have sweet time, like with Bill and Anita when when we got to spend time with Bill in his last days, or the ways in which that you guys uh, text one another and encourage one another and, and open your homes to one another, the, the fellowship that you 
you gain is not in yourselves. It's not in your identities. It's not in your strengths. It's not in your preferences. It is in Christ. And that is a work of grace. May that be so and ever increasing in us. And so beware, brothers and sisters, beware members of UBC, that we have an enemy that will love to break that up, would love to tear that down, would love to split it apart, would take every crack and opportunity to divide us, to section us off and put us in our corner so we can claim that I'm of, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos or I'm, I'm of Cephas or I'm of Christ or I'm of this class or I'm of that class, I'm of this generation or I'm of that generation, I'm of this preference or that preference, I'm of this experience or that, I'm of this view or this party. It'd be so easy for all of those things to split and to crack what God is doing here. May it not be so. Guard it. Diligently guard it in your own hearts. Guard it in the ways you talk to one another. Guard it in the ways you spend time together. Guard it in the ways that you follow the deacons we just vowed to support who are given as gifts from, to, from God to this church as a gracious way to, to benefit the unity of the body of Christ. Confirm that in them. Walk in that in them. I know that we need to be pushed hard. I know that there is much we need to improve on. But I am flabbergasted by the good grace of God that we have seen in this church and that by his grace may it ever increase among us. Thank God for his grace.